Uh, Please turn now to Colossians chapter 2. We're going to read verses 11 to 15 this morning. So Colossians 2, beginning at verse 11. In him, you were also circumcised with the circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, buried with him in baptism, in which you also were raised with him through the faith in the working of God, who raised him from the dead. And you, being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, He is made alive together with him, having forgiven you all the trespasses, having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us. And he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. Having disarmed principalities and powers, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. This is God's word and let's pray. Lord God, as we come to study your word together now, we pray that you might fill us with your spirit and grant us understanding of your word. Help us to rejoice more in you and the completed work that you have done. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. What do I owe you? We find ourselves asking that question quite a bit, don't we? A few weeks ago, we had some family over for dinner. And I just had surgery, Anna wasn't feeling well, so we bought pizza, took the easy way out, and it's also just an excuse to have pizza. Now, pretty much everyone, with one noticeable exception, said, what do we owe you? What do we owe you for dinner? I'm not holding it against that person, by the way. No record of wrongs. But we asked that question. Now, when I catch up with other pastors, it's about every uh, three to four weeks, I try and meet up with another pastor so we can sharpen each other up. One of us will pay for the coffee and the other one will say, how much do I owe you? Which is followed by nothing or you can pay for the next one, which is the more common response. Unless we don't like each other and aren't planning on seeing each other again, of course. Uh, Many of our interactions, though, they do revolve around this idea of owing, of clearing debts, of being square with the people around us. Uh, It might be for some people I know who have admitted they do this because they just don't want to look cheap. So what do I owe you? They don't want to look cheap. Maybe it's simply generosity. When I was studying for the ministry, I often had elders and men from presbytery meet up with me to see how I was tracking with things. And as a student, they wouldn't let me buy a coffee. They said, no, we have jobs that us buy the coffee. There was a a genuine generosity there. Again, perhaps maybe it's simply just maintaining good manners. What about being in a situation where you can't pay what you owe? A situation where someone tells you you have to earn what they've done for you or pay back what they've done for you, but you know you cannot do that. I've used this illustration before, but I uh, I watched this movie this week. Anna was in hospital, so I had the TV all to myself a couple of nights. Saving Private Ryan, in many ways it it is a horrific movie that illustrates the, the depravity of war. But in Saving Private Ryan, Tom Hanks' character, Captain Miller, he leads a group of US Army Rangers to find Private Ryan and bring him home. It's based roughly on a true story, but of course it's Hollywood, so it's not that real. Uh, As they're going across war-torn Europe, this company of rangers is slowly being taken out. They're losing men along the way. 
Now, near the end of the movie, it's been out since I was about six or seven years old, so I have no problem spoiling it for any of you. Uh, Captain Miller, uh, Tom Hanks' character, says to Private Ryan as he's dying, earn this. Now, the first and the final scenes of this movie are about 40 years before the events of this took place, with an elderly Private Ryan with his wife, his kids and his grandkids approaching the grave of Captain Miller. At the end of the movie, the former Private Ryan says, I think about what you did every day. I think about what you told me to do every day. I've tried to live in a way to earn this. Have I done enough? He turns to his wife and with this sense of uncertainty, says, tell me I'm a good man. Because only a good man could earn enough to pay the sacrifice that Captain Miller and his men had paid. We imagine those situations, we see those situations, we find ourselves sometimes chafing at the idea that we can't pay someone for a coffee. But how much more would we chafe if we owed someone for our life and we could not pay them back? Perhaps we feel like that as we consider the events of this weekend, 2020 or 2030 years ago. We open up the Bible, we see what Jesus did. We see the life that he offers us, we see the price that he paid for us. We see the enormity of it, this unimaginably huge price paid. So it's not just that we get to wake up in our beds the next morning or to be able to go home safely, but the entire ledger of our sin is wiped clean. And maybe we look at that and go, what do I owe? And not just not what to owe, how could I ever pay that? That price is too much. I could never, ever do enough to earn it. I am not worthy to receive this. And perhaps we have doubts. So how does this relate to Colossians chapter 2? Well, as I've said, we're really trying to focus on the resurrection of Christ today. But for us to remember that, we need to think about what came first. And as I said, there was a tremendous price. What came before Christ's resurrection was the brutal, the horrific, the utterly shameful death that Christ died. On the Friday that corresponds to this weekend, somewhere between 2020 and 2030 years ago, Jesus allowed himself to be led like a, slam, like a lamb to the slaughter. He allowed himself to be stripped. He allowed himself to be beaten. He allowed himself to be mocked. He allowed himself to be hung on a hard tree of wood. He allowed himself to go through the excruciating pain and the death that he died there. This is what happened on the Friday so many years ago. And all of those things, though, were turned to victory, which is what Colossians gets through as we get towards verse 15 later on. There are so many places in the New Testament that speak of the price that Christ paid. Colossians 2 is just one of those places. And this price, again, it's not like buying someone a coffee. It's not that sort of price. It's not like buying a few pizzas for family. This is the price of our very souls, and this is victory. After three days, our Heavenly Father raised Jesus Christ, the Son of God, back to life. John Lennox, who is an English mathematician and also an apologist, a brilliant man who wrote the book Gunning for God, which is well worth a read, says that the events of this weekend 
when we have stopped having a Passover and now we look forward to the fullness of what that Passover pointed us towards, that final Paschal Lamb, Jesus dying for our sins, had in this weekend an incredible act of God the Father. He worked in an incredible and powerful way when he raised his son from the grave. There was divine power on display. Death could not chain Christ. Divine power was at work. Jesus was raised back to life as proof for us. Now, how is that proof? Have you ever heard some of these say, I'm going to go and do X, Y, and Z? I'm going to go and do all these marvelous, amazing, wonderful things, and they happen to happen when no one can see that it's happened. But they tell you all about it, and you're left wondering, did that really happen? See, Jesus said that he was going to the cross. Jesus said that he was going to die there. We see through the prophets that Jesus was going to die there for the weight of the sins of all those who the Father would give to him. But was this just another man dying on the cross? No, it was not. The proof that there was something different about Jesus is his resurrection. Resurrection and a ransom paid. We read in Psalm 49 of the need for a ransom to be paid. But the ransom wasn't just for a small group of people. It wasn't just for one nation. We read in Isaiah 49, another one of those great 49 chapters, that Jesus the Messiah came not just to save the 12 tribes of Israel. That would be too light a thing for the Messiah. He came to save people from the far coastlands. How did he do that? He did it by dying on the cross. But perhaps we still have doubts. Perhaps we look at the cross and go, maybe it was all just a fizzer. Maybe it ended in defeat. And perhaps we carry those doubts with us. And if we carry those doubts with us, that's one of the reasons we read Luke chapter 24 before, the first 12 verses. We keep going through that chapter. More and more and more interactions that people had with the resurrected Jesus Christ. Eyewitnesses of this tremendous victory and the proof of this tremendous victory. Every single Sunday is a great day for Christians. Every single Sunday is a wonderful day for Christians. But I think it is worth taking the time on the day, the corresponding day when this happened, to take special note of what Jesus did. We go to Colossians chapter 2, verse 11 to 15, and we begin to see the picture unfolding even more. As we work through those verses, we see that we have received a spiritual circumcision. Something that God's people have been told they needed to do all through the Old Testament was to circumcise their hearts. This is not a physical circumcision being spoken about here. Paul says something about that in another book he wrote in Galatians. This is a spiritual circumstance. This is a cleaning, a cleansing of our hearts. It is done for us. We go further into verse 12 and we see there that we have been buried with Christ in baptized. We are associated with Christ through the sign of baptism being applied to us. Now I know there is some confusion about Colossians chapter 2 verses 11 and 12 as well as Romans 6 as to how we are to baptize people. 
in the Westminster Confession of Faith, uh, as a church who holds to that, we believe baptism is rightly administered by sprinkling or pouring. It's not the main point of where we're going this morning, but I did, I couldn't quite switch off over the last few weeks. I read an article called Done with Dunking on the, the, the Cauldron Pool website, which helps us understand why we view baptism the way we do. So if you're looking at this wondering whether we might be doing it wrong, have a look at that article. We died with Christ. There is a sense in which having taken on the weight of the world's sin, Christ died as a sinner. He who knew no sin was made sin, but was then made alive. And as Christ was raised, so we are raised with him. When we are moved by God's Holy Spirit, the third person of our Trinity, not just this strange force at work, this is the third person of the Trinity. When we are moved by the Holy Spirit to place our trust in Jesus Christ alone for salvation, what we are saying is, Jesus, you have paid the bill. I cannot contribute to it anything more but more debt. When we trust in him, though, We are not continuing to pile up debt after debt. We are made dead to sin and made alive in the beautiful, wonderful life that he has given for us, that he has won for us. And this is really what we see shining through in verses 13 and 14. Paul, who wrote this to the Christians in Colossae, he briefly but beautifully summarizes the change that's happened now that we are identified with Christ. And baptism being that sign that we are identifying ourselves with Christ. We were dead in sin. That is a plain and simple truth. Paul does not beat around the bush here. And you being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, we were dead in sin. We need to understand what Paul's saying here. There's confusion about that these days. But to take the illustration of, of owing someone in a cafe situation. It would be like us being in that cafe with somebody trying and trying to pay for our drinks. Oh, I don't have my wallet on me. But it's not just that we don't have our wallet on us, but our wallet's not with us. Our credit cards are completely maxed out. We have multi-million dollar debts and we have no job to even pay the interest, let alone the principal on the debts that we owe. It is a hopeless, futile effort. We cannot pay for the coffee. And that's before coffees go up to the expected $7 they're meant to go to later this year. To describe it another way, if we were in a shipwreck and we were at sea and a rescue boat came past with a life ring on it, with a lifesaver ring, they threw it out to us, we wouldn't be able to grab it. It's not just that we're lost at sea. We don't even have the capacity to grab it or hold on just a tiny bit or hook just a single finger around it and hope that's enough to be pulled back in. We cannot grab it because we are dead. We are non-responsive. We needed somebody to dive in after us to pull us back and give us CPR. There are consequences for our sin. There are consequences that need to be paid for. And what Paul is saying is this, that every single thing, Every single thing that we did wrong, every single sin that we committed against our holy God 
Every trespass against God who is nothing short of holy was paid by Jesus completely and utterly. The consequences for those sins, for those trespasses is death. And that is why Jesus died. He died to pay the price for our sins. And because he is God, he can pay that price. Every ticket written against our sin was nailed to that horrific cross when Christ hang there to die. Perhaps again we still wonder, isn't that defeat? Death is not victory. Perhaps this looks like defeat, but look at verse 15. Having disarmed principalities and powers, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. In what did Christ triumph over the powers and principalities, the ungodly things that have power here in this world? In his crucifixion, in him being nailed to the cross. That is how Christ triumphed and made a public spectacle of those who would oppose God. Where death would be defeat for anyone else, for Christ it is victory. This is why he came to win people for himself. And he paid the ransom that was set. He did this. This is why Paul includes here this really important verse of 15, which is so doxological, so praise-filled. He has triumphed over them. He has done it publicly. This victory has been won. The ransom is paid. We are God's. A few weeks ago, Chris preached on John chapter 6. And rightly, Chris focused on I am the bread of life, one of those nine beautiful I am statements in John's gospel. There's too much to go into all of it there. But one of the things we read in John chapter 6 in that passage that Chris read out for us is that all those who the Father gives to Jesus will not be lost by Jesus. The victory is won. The rewards are certain. And they are made even more public than Elon Musk's attempted Twitter takeover that's blowing up my newsfeed this week. It is public. It is finished. This is what we see every Lord's Day. This is what we especially see every single Resurrection Sunday. Christ died for sinners and Christ was raised from the dead back to life. We remember the price that was paid and we remember that in Christ's resurrection we have the eternal receipt, not printed in ink that fades so we can't can't get our refund for it at the shops. This is printed in everlasting ink. So we go back to the question we started off with. As we turn our minds to to God and what he has done, question, what do I owe you? Everything. Everything is the answer. And while the answer is everything, we should rejoice that God is not like that captain in Saving Private Ryan who said, earn this. Jesus did all this according to the will of the Father. Our triune God says to us, take this. 
Enjoy this. Live with this freedom. Live in the life that I have given to you. It makes no sense whatsoever to return to the sin that made us dead when we have now received life. So we rejoice. We rejoice. We rejoice because Jesus won. We rejoice because he won that battle against sin and death. He won us. He won you and he won me. We rejoice because we are free. And we rejoice because of those three very special words we see all over the place this weekend every year. He is risen. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for the tremendous work that you have done for us. We thank you that you alone have saved us. Our hope could be placed in no other place than you. And you didn't turn a blind eye to us despite you being the one who we committed sins against. You still worked for us. We praise you for that. We thank you for salvation. We pray, O oh God, that we would glorify your name in all that we do. That whatever we do, whether we eat or drink, we do it all to the glory of your name because you are God, you are our saviour, and we are yours forever. Amen.